And then we'll get started. Thanks, Bob, for getting that going. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and learn more from your word. We look today into your word for purity, that we may be people devoted to your glory, all by your grace. And we pray for Bob's sermon as well. We pray, Lord, these discussions about marriage and um, life in the body here and now. We pray that we would glorify you and our bodies. We pray you'd give us wisdom as we look at Proverbs chapter 5. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be with everyone. Now today, we're going to be learning wisdom about remaining faithful to one's spouse all the days of your life. And that is a major point of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And I'm amazed providentially how the message that we are in in Proverbs ties into what Bob is going to be preaching today on in 1 Corinthians 7 and has been preaching about marriage and fidelity and the importance of one man and one woman. Thank you, Jessica. So what I want to do is show you here that Solomon shared wisdom that he himself, I don't think, lived up to. Now, there's some debate, of course, as to whether or not Solomon penned the exact words here of Proverbs 5. I do believe it's, it's more than likely he did. But I want to read to you from a scholar named Dwayne Garrett about the significance of talking about these issues in the church today. Let me, um, oh, I'm sorry, I got an echo again. We have our engineers working on it. <laughs> I could move this. I could move. The... You want me to move the? Should I move it closer? It was just ringing at about. She she knows what the. Okay, good. That's. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Dwayne Garrett. In fact, Bob knows of him as well in his studies, and I know Dwayne Garrett put out a Hebrew grammar text that I actually use here today. So. Anyway, but listen to Dwayne Garrett. I think he has some insights here. He says, quote, The Bible does not hide from or obscure the power of the temptation to elicit sex in language that is refreshingly clear and direct without itself indulging in titillation. The text warns the reader of the debacle that awaits him that should succumb in this area and at the same time promises profound joy to those whose hearts are chaste and loving. If the church is to do its duty... It must, it must be no less clear in its teachings to assume that nice Christian young people do not struggle in these areas or to speak only in whispers and innuendo on the grounds that they are inappropriate for the Christian pulpit is no less than gross neglect of the duty on the church's part, unquote. I think Dwayne Garrett is right. I think we just teach the text for what it says. And so today we're going to be looking at the wisdom of having eyes only for our spouse that is upholding again God's mandate of marriage being between one man and one woman. And again, in that culture, the culture we live in today, that is not going to be a very popular choice, a very popular thought, but it's the truth from God's word. So with that, let's talk about the threat of the adulteress. Let's look at Proverbs 5, 1 through 6. And again, we've left chapter 4 where this idea of wisdom that it should be listened to, understood, and believed by the son is now reiterated. Notice it says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. 
Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice here in blue, I'm going to pull up my pointer too. Notice he says, give attention to my wisdom and incline your ear to understanding. This is very synonymous with this call to hear. Remember I talked about how Solomon often uses the term Shema here in the idea of both understanding what is spoken, that is the wisdom that comes from the Father. And again, this would be an earthly father, but implied would be ultimately the heavenly father. Why? Because I think implied is that this earthly father is giving God's word. I think that's implied throughout the book of Proverbs. So anytime you see wisdom, the ultimate source of wisdom is ultimately the heavenly father. And so are the is the son going to hear and understand and then believe it? And there's a difference between understanding and believing. How many times have you have parents, have you told your child something and they understand what you're saying, they just don't want any part of it. They don't believe you, they think they know better, and they go their own way. That's the risk here. And so notice he says, that he wants them to have understanding. And notice there's a purpose clause for this, an explanatory clause in verse 2. He says, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. Now, notice this term discretion, muzima. And what it literally means is the ability to make proper and moral decisions. Now, how would you make proper and moral decisions? Well, by living to the standard of God's word, and not to the standard of the world. But notice right away, I don't want to lose the train of thought, he explains why he wants his son to have understanding so that he may have discretion. Notice in verse 3, the explanatory 4. In Hebrew, it's key. So here, this tells you why he needs this discretion, the ability to make proper and moral decisions. He says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. In other words, son, you're going out into the world... And if you don't understand God's word, you're going to fall for the adulteress. The adulteress who gives you words that are flattering, that have, they have speech that seems to appreciate you, and of course, pad your ego. If you don't hear my wisdom, you're going to fall for the lips of the adulteress. That's the idea. Now, what's interesting is the term here for the adulteress is literally zar, which means the other woman. Okay, so zar in Hebrew is literally other. And so it's just simply the other woman. And I think that that's instructive when we think about immorality in the sexual union. It's immorality that is other. So God defines marriage between one man, one woman, Genesis 2.24. That's the confines of marriage. Anyone outside of that is in the category of other. And the other is the problem. Now, notice here the synonymous parallelism. The lips of the adulteress drip honey and are smoother, the words are, than oil. That is her speech. The idea there is oftentimes the adulteress will pad the ego of the male. Perhaps the male doesn't get that from his wife, but the adulteress does. And it takes a godly person that has a developed worldview and wisdom to be able to say, I'm not going to succumb to that type of flirtation and that type of ego padding. That's the idea that we see here. Now, notice the contrast in verses 4 through 5. What's the result of the adulteress's speech? 
notice the contrast, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, wormwood, I looked this up, by the way. I've, I've often seen this in the scriptures. It'll talk about the bitterness of wormwood. Let me read you a definition of this so we know what wormwood is. From the theological word book of the Old Testament, it is a root and it is an herb, of a, it's a root of an herb, a leafy plant oil, or liver bile, and it says a dark green bitter oil used in absinthium. Now, any of you are into plants, I don't know what that is, but the point is it doesn't taste good. It is very bitter, and that is synonymous with the idea of the sharp two-edged sword. So in reality, even though her speech sounds good, and it pads the ego of the male, what does it lead to? It leads to bitterness and death. That's the imagery behind the two-edged sword. The two-edged sword reinforces the deadly nature of her speech. It sounds good at the time, but at the end, it leads to death. And that's backed up in verses 5 and 6. Notice verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. By the way, in verse 5, that is a perfect example of Hebrew parallel synonymous, uh, synonymous parallelism because you have the same idea just reiterated differently. In other words, the feet going down to death is synonymous with the steps taking hold of Sheol. Sheol is the grave. So there you have the same thing. That's synonymous parallelism. Now notice here in verse 6, it also says she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. This is absolutely the opposite of the Proverbs 31 woman. So the woman here in Proverbs 5, 6 is the opposite of the godly woman of Proverbs 31. And so what we have to see here is that, yes, men and women will always have a natural physical attraction towards one another, but the godly, those who have wisdom that comes from the scriptures, are able to overcome the natural instinct and not live as the animal. Do you remember in the book of Jude, those who transgressed the boundaries that God had given, they're described as what? Unreasoning beasts, as Bob said. Absolutely. Why? Because they live on instinct rather than on rational thought. That's what the wisdom of the scriptures is trying to help us do. Live by wisdom rather than by what little instinct humans actually have. Yes? Just for general knowledge, emsythium, that's what makes, uh, that's what makes uh, uh, like tomato plant leaves. Oh. That's what makes rhubarb leaves. Okay. Uh, that's what makes anything in the nightshade family poisonous. But my, quest, my point is, is that so if you have a spouse that makes out honey-do lists and tells you what to do, you know you're on the right track. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Brian. Yes. Thanks for sharing. Yes, Bob. Yeah, on that last point of unreasoning, yes, that's why the current trend in our culture is so insidious. Yes, because of an attack against reason. Right, and this implication that people should the reality is a state of mind. Yes, that you should accentuate the mystical, the sensual, uh, in the whatever. You know, unreasonable thought that comes into your mind yes. may be what's real. Right. And certainly that plays out in this horrible situation with gender issues. Yeah. 
and uh, we should be able to see clearly how dangerous and wicked it is when you leave aside wisdom and understanding. I assume that's a synonymous parallelism Absolutely, too. Yes. And go by the sensual. Yes. And it's uh, it's going to destroy any, anybody that goes that way. Well Because said. Satan will use that to just do every kind of damage you can think of. Well said, Bob. You know, it's interesting. When Bob and I met each other, I was at seminary at Bethel. And what I believe I was witnessing, if I were to look back on it, was the transition in American evangelical academia, if you could use that term, from leaving modern rational thought going to post-modernity. And so I want to just explain what the battle is and what's kind of devastated the church. Uh, Bob wrote a great book rebuking the emerging church. And if I were to define what that book shows is there's three E's to the emerging church that devastated evangelicalism. It's the emergence theory, which is their eschatology. There's also their epistemology. And then um, it's their eschatology. Actually, the emergence theory is their spirituality. So emergence theory, eschatology, and their epistemology. Now, what's epistemology? That's the study of knowledge. And what scholars did is they buffaloed Christians into saying, you really can't know your Bible. They took it away from us by saying, you really don't know what you think you know. And so the shift that happened is you and I have always been fundamentalists that is basing our thought on the correspondence theory of truth. So we call that foundationalism. So in the correspondence theory of truth, a statement is true if that statement corresponds to reality. So if I make a propositional statement and I say I have $5 in my pocket, we open up my pocket and there's $5 in it, that is a true statement because the statement corresponds to reality. That was what evangelical was founded on because the scriptures declare to you the world as it really is. Who God is, who we are, why we need him, how we receive him, all those good things. So that was rejected for something called coherentism. So the idea that a statement corresponds to reality and therefore it's true was jettisoned for the notion that something is true if we all agree on it. That is, if the group believes that it's true, then it's true. And in a way of putting that today, as you hear a lot of people talk about our narrative, there's a lot of narrative building that you hear about in different political circles. The problem with narrative building is a lot of narratives aren't in any way connected to reality. Let's say I, I have a million dollars in my pocket, and in fact, I've got 25 cents. I can build up a big narrative, but it's not connected to the real world. And so what postmodernity did, as Bob is saying, is they made us unreasoning beasts by taking our Bible away from us. And the battle first happened in the arena of epistemology. One of the great passages that I think shows us that we, in fact, can come to true interpretations of literature is found in Second Peter. Remember, there Peter argues with those who said he had the wrong interpretation. And how does he prove that he had the right interpretation, that namely Jesus was going to return? Well, he says, God from heaven told us. We heard him say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That was a quotation from Psalm 2. And what is Psalm 2 about? Well, Psalm 2 is about the reign of Christ over the earth. And so he 
reckons that that statement from the Heavenly Father means Jesus has to return and bodily reign. What Peter is saying is his interpretation of the scriptures was authenticated by God. And so certainly there are true interpretations and there are untrue interpretations. That's the debate in our culture. All critical race theory is, is built off of critical theory. Critical theory says you can't know that. That's what they keep telling you. So the only way you have the laws you do, the history you do, is because in their idea, white people were in charge. That's the idea. Why? Because the Marxist has to break us down. Race, class, gender, race, class, gender, race, class, gender. Have the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. Make the divide. And they have to have it. And so the way to do it is to use critical theory, which is based on what? Epistemology that says you can't know. Bob said of Brian McLaren, the very famous postmodern, I don't want to use the term scholar, but we'll just use uh, pastor. He said that he was the little engine that can't. I think I can't, I think I can't, I think I can't when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. We have to reject that, and we have to say, yes, we can know. Remember, John himself says in 1 John 5, 13, I write to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Either John the Apostle is right, or Immanuel Kant and men like Jacques Derrida, the deconstructionist, they are right. And so which way are we going to go? Yes, Brian. The minority view seems to prevail. How, what's, the, what's the answer to that? How does the, you would think the majority would, would prevail, but now we have views that not a lot of people agree with, but everybody pushes that agenda. Yeah, you know, I think one of the big problems that I've seen is that academia in and of itself has a stranglehold over knowledge, as it were. Not over knowledge, I don't want to put it that way. They, they have the accreditation boards, okay? So if you want to get something that is going, in other words, you need a degree to go on. I had to get a four-year degree as an airline pilot. So I get a private, my instrument, my commercial, my CFI, my double I, my multi-engine, my, and I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. I fly flight instruct for years, and then I go to some college. They say, well, you're going to have to pay us money to give you the degree. And then you have to take these classes, and then we're going to try to indoctrinate you into being a Marxist. Well, we have to stop that. In my opinion, that's one of the big problems. It's, it's a, a stranglehold over knowledge. And so what I think we have to do is to say, as Christians, something is true because it corresponds to reality. We're going to hold that line, and we're going to demand that our educators do that. And if I won't be educated with someone who believes that I can know something from the written language, I won't listen to you. I won't sit under it. I'll have nothing to do with it. Um, if I were a, a parent going to one of the, the board meetings with the school boards, I would bring up Jacques Derrida right away, immediately, because his second dictum, that is his maxim, says all ideas collapse into their contrary ideas. And I would have brought up right away mass. If, the, if Jacques Derrida, which is the root of critical race theory, is true, if, if he's right, if you're going to buy into him, then wearing a mask is identical to not wearing a mask. That's the irrationality of Jacques Derrida, who is the root of critical theory and critical race theory. But Christians aren't being equipped in the area of epistemology. And I think that that's what we ought to do as well. Because that's the secret sauce that the left is using. And I'm talking about those who have taken over seminaries and churches. 
to beat Christians over the head with. So that's what I think we should do, Brian, is we have to equip Christians to see the epistemological change. And what the Bible says is, no, you can know truth. It's not hard. Um, you live your whole day. When the, the waitress or the waiter comes to you and says, hey, it's, I have to elevate the price. I used to use $7.95 for a patty melt. Let's use $14.95 now because the postmoderns are in charge of the economy, right? It's getting better. So it's $14.95 for your patty melt. Does anyone say, hey, that's just your interpretation? Well, no. You live in your whole life by interpreting things and coming to knowledge. You stop at red lights. You go at green lights. You don't approach the intersection and say, well, who can know the symbology? Right after all, the people who put up those lights, they're just biased, and I'm just going to go sailing through in any old color I want. Well, you won't live very long. And that's the point is the academics who get the, the dollars, they don't really have to operate too often in the real world. That's the problem. And so Bob is exactly right. The call to the scriptures is a call to rationality. How do we know God rationally? I feel based on what I think. My thought always has to govern my feelings. Okay, and that's one of my criticisms, I guess, of the movement that talks about knowing God through experiences. Yes, Bob. Uh, I think a good biblical example is Joseph yes. and Potiphar's wife. Fled. Okay, because here, um, if you read that narrative in Genesis, yes. Joseph resisted temptation. It cost him a lot Yeah. by using reason. My master has taken care of me. He's not left anything that's not under my authority. How can I do this evil? Yeah. And he ran, and she grabbed his garment and yeah. lied about him. Right. But Joseph maintained his integrity Amen. by using reason. Yes. Uh, passion won't get you out of a bad situation. That's right. But reason will, because God has spoken objectively and reasonably to human beings that's in keeping with how he created us. Amen. Okay, not as instinctive beasts. So the current trends in education are anti-human. That's right. Now, Schaefer predicted this. I cited him a lot in that book. Right. Uh, Escape from Reason, God was there, and he is there, and he's not silent on that trilogy. Right. Um, that once you escape from reason, you end up in the realm of the irrational. That's right. And you, and you are going to perish in it. Yeah. I heard him speak toward the end of his life. Wow. What year was that, Bob? That was in 83. What year? He was in Rochester getting okay. cancer treatment. What year was that? Early 80s. Okay. And it was um, across from the Fort Parkway hmm. Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And he was speaking about human life, being created in the image of God. And he predicted a lot of what is happening now at that yeah. speech that we heard. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, Rich. Thank you. Uh, this is fantastic, wonderful information because I've read about this for yeah. years, about the brute beasts, never really understanding what this meant. Yeah. So I've never read the Satanic Bible, but I guess the first words in the Satanic Bible are do what you will, do what thou wilt, do whatever feels good. Yeah. No, that's the brute beast, right? I do whatever I feel, you know, whenever I feel, however I feel. 
But what stands in the way of this is the Word of God. The Word of God says, no, you don't do what you feel. You do what the Lord instructs you to do. Instead, you have sex with your wife, and that's it. You know, So the whole thing of the brute beast is my natural instinct versus the Word of God, versus God who says no. You know, and, and the government, the purpose of the government is to actually make rules and regulations to keep us from killing ourselves, right? Right. So... Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, the word of God and the government, God institutes the government to stop me from murdering somebody I don't like. But the truth is, is that the opposite of brute beasts is, you know, the rule of God, God's law, God's written law, thou shalt not. It just is a matting, it's a matter of the distinction between brute beast and the word of God. Am I correct? Well said, Rich. I think about in the garden, you have a postmodern discussion. Satan says, has God really said? And so he's taking into question the interpretation of God's word as if it was unclear. And remember how he muddles it? You can't eat of every tree? Well, no. <laughs> the woman points out it was actually just that one tree. And then he gets into the debate as to what it really means. You won't surely die. You know. So again, the initial debate in the garden is over, can you come to a true interpretation of God's word? And fast forward to Brian McLaren and all those that Bob has had to rebuke, we're no different. I remember hearing, uh, we have to stop binary reductionism now. You can't have either or. That was at my orientation lecture. I leave the airlines where every day of my life, I fly eight legs a day, and it's either gear is up or gear is down, right? And landing with your gear up, is different than landing with your gear down. Do you know how you know? If you land gear down, it takes full power to taxi. <laughs> right? you got a lot of drag, right? <laughs> so my, my point is, I, I think what happens is people who live in the real world, you all have to live according to the laws of logic, the laws of reason. And all of a sudden you go to academia now and they throw it out. We have to say, no, I'm not going there. I'm post-postmodern. We have to be the rebels again to say I'm rebelling for the sake of God's word. I'm in a new reformation. I'm protesting. I will not go there, and I will defend the epistemology that's inherent in the Bible. That's what I think we should be about. And by the way, Bob DeWay is the one who helped me do that when I was a a brand-new seminary student. Yes, LeVon. I was a young woman. I was talking... Can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, as a young woman, I was talking to a Roman Catholic priest, and at one point I said to him, well, Mary was, Mary is not holy. And he says, well, you don't know that. And I says, well, that's what the Bible says. And so when you go beyond what God has said, Look what it's done to yes. the worship of Mary and so forth, rather than believing what God has said. Well said, Levon. You're holding on to the actual word of God, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're saying that is a contradiction to what you, Mr. Priest, are, you are saying. You are saying that there's one outside of Christ who doesn't fit into the Romans 3.23 category. Good for you, Levon. Yes, that's a perfect example. They're going by the magisterium. We're going by the word of God. They both can't be true. 
at the same time, the same relationship. Well said. Well, I'm sorry, I get us off, on, uh, off track here, but I'll keep us moving. But the point that we want to take away is that, yes, rationality overcoming our emotions is critical to godly living. Now here in verses 7 through 11, we see transgressing God's boundaries of marriage really does harm one's future. Now, before I put up the verses, I want to mention in all of this, this is not to say that past sin or past problems that you've had cannot be recovered and cannot be repented of. One of the things that I've taken away from Bob's messages in 1 Corinthians as of late is wherever you are now, live godly now. You, you, you can't get rid of the past, but you can live godly now. So whatever marriage you're in now, now is the time to live faithful. Or if you're unmarried, whatever the, the case may be. That's the point that I think we should take away from the scriptures. Notice Proverbs 5, 7 through 11. It says, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Now, Germans, notice here further tender admonition from this father to his son. And notice here in verse 8, he says, keep, keep your way far from her. This is the idea of fleeing from temptation. The idea of overcoming temptation is not grabbing onto it and defeating it in mortal hand-to-hand -hand combat, but fleeing. Just as Bob had mentioned Joseph, Joseph didn't lie with her. He fled from her. He didn't get together with Potiphar's wife and overcome. He fled. And so I know that may sound somewhat cowardly, but in the arena of temptation, it's not cowardly at all. It is the godly thing. Recognizing rationally that we are fallen human beings that can succumb, we flee from temptation. That's the idea. Keep your way far from her and don't even go near. Notice verses 9 through 11 give us the consequences. If you do go near and you succumb, and by the way, this can be either for man or woman. Here it's addressed to sons who probably have more proclivity. But it can be either or. Notice he says, Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength. Notice the debate here is over who are these others and who are the strangers. I'm going to give you five different interpretations as to who these people are. One thing we know is all of these terms are actually masculine, whether it's the others or the strangers. So we know it's not a reference to the adulteress herself. Is that clear? So who are these others and these strangers that will get your vigor and they will be given your hard-earned goods? Well, let me give you the different interpretations over the years of this. Number one, the woman is a prostitute and the man is her agent. So the idea is that the agent would be getting your goods. That's one possibility. The second is that the woman is married and her husband exacts a, heaven, a heavy fine and the death penalty, or, or perhaps even the death penalty. Remember, in Deuteronomy 22, that could be done. We'll actually look at that passage in a little bit. Okay, that's the second option. Number three, the woman is a foreigner, and therefore the son here has breached the covenant. Just like, remember in Numbers 25, where the Israelites went after the Moabite women? And therefore they're giving their wealth and their virility to these pagans. 
That's the third option. The fourth option is that the woman is a cult prostitute and the strangers are cult priests who benefit from the young man's discretions. In other words, the cultic priests are getting the money. The fifth option is the woman is a mistress who just care, carelessly spends the money of this young man who falls for her. At the end of the day, we don't know which of these is the case because I think it's deliberately ambiguous enough to apply in every scenario. This reminded me of when Bob was teaching through Galatians. Do you remember Bob taught us about Paul's usage of the phrase law works? And law works certainly refers to the Mosaic law, but it's generic enough by the Apostle Paul to refer to any type of human work that you would try to use to attain salvation. Okay, So I think sometimes the biblical writers are deliberately ambiguous so that it applies to basically any scenario that logically would apply to that situation. Okay, So the text isn't specific, and I think therefore, yes, it's all of it. You do not want to, at the end of your days, be giving your resources as a young man to people outside of your family. And that's what the writer of Proverbs is warning about. Yes, Paul. This sort of reminds me when Solomon uh, united with foreign wives, yes. he was reuniting with foreign gods, and he should have been reading his own stuff, I think. Exactly. That's one of my points later, Paul. Exactly right. He's a man who failed at his own wisdom, didn't he? Absolutely. And it's sad. It's really sad to see that. Yes, um, Solomon did not live up to the very wisdom that he gave. Absolutely. Uh, I think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He says that he disciplines his body so that after he preaches to others, he himself may not be disqualified. I think that's 1 Corinthians 9, 27. And what Paul the Apostle is referring to is after he preaches the doctrines to others, he wants to live up to them himself so that he shows that he really is one who believes because if you believe, you obey. That's the idea. And so, yeah, that's something we really wonder about Solomon. Notice here at the end, in verse 11, where it says that you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Here's something to think about. Here's where I think Proverbs starts to blend. It's certainly talking about life here and now. That's the focus of Proverbs. But here's where I think it starts to blend into eternity. That yes, your sins will in fact follow you if you don't repent of them in turn. And so the idea then is that there are real consequences both here and later for those who transgress God's word. And we will find that more and more as we go through this section. Okay, now we see the ruin an adulteress brings. We're going to see here in verses 12 through 14 the lament of the ruined man. Notice it says, And you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Now, notice here the lament. Oh, how I've hated instruction. Isn't it interesting? The instruction that comes from the Lord doesn't bind us. In other words, it does. But it doesn't bind us in the sense that, oh, I'm not free. It actually sets us free. Remember, Jesus debates with the Jews who say, we've never been anyone's slaves. Jesus says, no, on the contrary, you are slaves to sin. And so those who engage in sin are not free. They're actually in bondage. That is contrary to the culture today that says, if you will sin, you're free. 
But if you live according to the scriptures, you're bound. Okay, and I'm not using bound in the sense of binding and loosing. I'm just saying you're not free. Well, the opposite is true, and you and I have to see through the lie. The lie of the culture is if you live according to God's word, you're no longer free. Our message is if you don't live according to God's word, if you transgress the boundaries of marriage, you're the one who's not free. That should be our message. Now, notice here in verse 13, the teachers and instructors, again, are assumed to be godly agents, uh, whether they be family members, friends, uh, parents. Notice he says, I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to instructors. In the book of Proverbs, it is always assumed that the wisdom that's coming to the son is that of godly people. In other words, they're giving him the word of God. It's never just wisdom that comes from the world. And so keep that in your mind, that any time you see, I haven't listened to the voice of my teacher, something like that phrase, it always infers that that is godly wisdom. Notice here in red, he says, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Turn your Bibles. I'm going to show you where this was mandated in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Here we're going to see some legislation within the Old Covenant of what was to be done to a man and a woman who were caught in adultery. Again, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Notice it says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge evil, the evil from Israel. So the idea here is this utter ruin could be a reference to that, but it also could be simply a reference to humiliation in public. Both were possibilities. We don't know which, in fact, the writer of Proverbs has in mind. But both are possibilities. Either way, bad consequences happen because of adultery. Now, what's the remedy to all this? What's the remedy to succumbing to the temptress and the adulteress, the czar, the other woman? It's having contentment within marriage. It's having contentment with your spouse. That's what we see here in Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Here's the remedy. Here the writer of Proverbs says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now, notice here, this drinking, this water from your own cistern and fresh water from your well, that is obviously a metaphor for stay with your spouse. That's what the metaphor is about. Now, as I say this is a metaphor, sometimes Christians will react and say, wait a minute, I don't like you telling me something's a metaphor. Remember, when you and I are literally trying to interpret the scriptures, our, what we're seeking is authorial intent. And we want to interpret metaphors as metaphors and literal speech as literal speech. Otherwise, we're going to be in error. Just think if we took this literally. What would it mean to drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well? Well, it would be well out of place, wouldn't it? You'd say, well, 
I guess all of a sudden he switched to my drinking habits. Well, obviously he's using a metaphor to say stay within the confines of marriage. Be faithful to your spouse. Again, Genesis 2.24 is always the background of this. One man, one woman. Notice verse 17. He says, let them be yours alone and not strangers. The strangers there, again, is plural, czar. It's the other one. It's the other one. And again, it's generic enough where it can be the other woman. But also, if you're a woman, it could be the other man. Don't allow the others to have your affection, your time, your attention. Leave it with your spouse. And to me, the key verse in this entire section of Proverbs 5 is verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. If I could leave any wisdom to my son, I told him about this passage. He's actually out of town again this weekend, but I I gave him this passage. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's wisdom. That's wisdom from Solomon. That's wisdom that the world needs to hear. Be content with the spouse of your youth. Think of the track record that you have with your spouse. They know things about you and you know things about them that no one else knows. And that's part of marriage. I remember R.C. Sproul talking about, remember after Adam and Eve fall, they are found to be naked in the garden. And one thing R.C. pointed out is in some sense marriage is the safe space again to be naked. And the most damaging thing that can happen to a human being is when a spouse sees all that the other is and rejects them. It's the most damaging thing that can ever happen to a human being made in the image of God. And so marriage, the the confines of marriage developed by God in Genesis 2.24, one man, one woman, and sexuality within those parameters is designed to protect human beings made in the image of God. And those who are teaching today in our culture and for all other cultures and all time, because it's always gone on, that it's okay to transgress the confines of marriage, they're doing grave damage to human beings made in the image of God. That's how we should see the idea of infidelity. Yes, Brian. Now, I don't say this to be funny, but it's cheaper to stay with your spouse. I have friends that have been divorced, and it ruins people and it ruins families. Children uh, get utterly destroyed and God knew this. So through his wisdom, as far as staying together and honoring marriage, uh, he knew how devastating that it would be for families. Well said. In fact, let me back up a couple slides. Notice he says, or you will give your vigor to others in your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength. You're exactly right. The divided homes are homes that their goods are dispersed. And I've heard oftentimes, if you want to make sure you never enter into poverty, for example, as a citizen in our country, make sure you get a, at least a college diploma and remain married. High school diploma. I'm sorry, a high school diploma. Yes, and remain married. Yeah, don't go to college. That'll that'll lead you to the opposite of... Yeah. So absolutely right. If you're faithful to your wife or your husband, it's going to go well with you. Your resources won't be dispersed, and you won't be giving your years and your virility, etc., to the stranger. Absolutely. So yes, I think here... Oops, sorry. There we go. Verse 18 is kind of the key. Notice the verse 19... Verse 19 describes the woman 
to the eyes of the man. And again, this shows us that we as believers aren't prudes. The hind here, by the way, that's a term, um, ayala, which is the term for a deer. A deer in the ancient Near East was a sign of great beauty and virility. Okay, and so that's why the wife here is being described as that in a graceful doe. Notice they're synonymous. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The sexual union of a man and a woman is a wonderful thing. It has to be within the confines of marriage. So do you remember in the garden, God doesn't say, well, you guys can't eat of any of these trees. You can't eat of the fruit. He said, you can eat of all of the trees, but there's one that you can't. In some sense, marriage is the opposite, but it's beautiful. You can only partake of one tree. But the idea is that that restriction is designed to protect humanity, human beings made in the image of God, and it is a beautiful thing. And so, yes, we as Christians aren't prudes. We are those who live according to God's design plan. Uh, let me have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 7, 5, a reminder of something that Bob had instructed us on. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, talking about the relationship physically between the man and the woman in the confines of marriage. Here's wisdom that Paul gives, and I think it ties in very nicely with what Solomon gave us here in Proverbs 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul says this. He says, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice the realism. I love the fact the Apostle Paul talks about the lack of self-control. The Bible is written by people who know human beings. It's written by ultimately God who created us, and he knows that we are those who easily succumb to temptation. And so within the confines of marriage, the physical union is something that is godly. It is to be expressed it is good. It is something that God has, in fact, created. After all, didn't God say, be fruitful and multiply? That came from God. It didn't come from Satan. It didn't come from some false deity. Be fruitful and multiply was God's design. But again, it's within the confines of marriage. Okay, now we all answer to God, and that's something that the writer here of Proverbs wants his son to know. Proverbs 5, 20 through 23, he says, For why... Should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Notice verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Notice here this rhetorical question. Let me pull up my pointer again. He says, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? The obvious answer to that question is, well, of course that's dumb. I shouldn't do that. Why would I do that and have all of the consequences that come? But now he adds another consequence, verse 21. The most important one is that the ways, the ways here is, of course, the actions, the lifestyle, the way that we live of a human being. It's always before the Lord. And so here we see the beginning of Proverbs come into play. Do you remember Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom? 
That's Proverbs 1.7. That is the governing verse of the entire book. So what brings about true knowledge and wisdom? The fear of Yahweh. Why? Because we all answer to him. And if you believe it, you act on that. To say, I'm not going to do that because I answer to Yahweh and I'm not going to suffer the consequences that he will one day need out. I don't want to answer to him. Remember, Jesus warns in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but he that is God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The fear of Yahweh is what keeps us from sinning. Now, notice verse 22. It says his own iniquities will capture the wicked. This is where the sinfulness of man or woman ends up capturing them and leading them to further sin and destruction all the days of their life. If they don't start saying no now, the sin grows and festers and leads to greater problems. And I want you to see, I think, a New Testament passage that speaks to this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans one twenty-two through 24. Romans one twenty-two through 24. This passage is about reprobation, about the hardening, handing people over to their own sinful lust. Romans 1, 22 through 24. And as we pick it up in Romans 1, 22, remember the problem is these people have exchanged God for idols. Notice it says in Romans 1, through 24, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures Therefore, notice verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Dear ones, do you ever think about as you look at the culture and how people are taking pride in sin, that they have been handed over by God to the lust of their hearts? In other words, they have lied to themselves so long that they start believing their own rhetoric. And that's one of the most frightening things is when you believe your own press clippings. When you lie to yourself so long as a sinner and say, my sin is good, God hands you over so that you keep doing that. When you get to Romans 2, 5, it says they are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And Bob had pointed out, I think very astutely, that in that text, the Greek probably accentuates the idea of accruing interest. So the person who doesn't break out of the sin, in other words, they show themselves to be the unbeliever because they don't believe, therefore they don't obey. They just keep going, and it snowballs. I knew a, a person, I won't mention any names, the person's deceased now, but it was a person I knew well that had several adulterous relationships. And in their life, this person lied so much because they couldn't deal with who they were that they actually start believing the lie. So reality is, it's like they've become postmodern. It's true for them. And they have to live with that. And I'll never forget it. This person was convinced that the opposite of reality was true. And it's shocking. And that's the idea of being given over, that you really start living to, to really express your sinful nature at its most extreme. Yes, uh, Paul. Um, back to the Proverbs 5 that we're studying here. Yes. Uh, I understand there are consequences for sure. I, I can get, there, are, there are consequences. It's like this is from the guy's point of view. But I do sort of miss your respect, honor, and love for your wife. 
I kind of missed that. Am I missing something here? No, um, absolutely not. That's not the, the point that he's making here. His point here, let's let just let the writer of Proverbs make his points. Those are points that are made. Uh, for example, in Ephesians, we see that. You know, um, absolutely. But here, the point is be faithful. Okay? So if we take under the rubric of honor your wife and love her and care for her, etc., the way that you can do that is be faithful. Right? And so in, in a sense, I think in Proverbs 5, we're given the root. If you're going to boil everything down, the one thing you have to do in marriage is be faithful. If, if you fail at that point, you, you fail. You've got to be faithful, right? Uh, yes, Jessica. And it seems like often the start of unfaithfulness is being dissatisfied in the day-to-day loving care of your spouse. Yes. It, it doesn't end in adultery. Well, it does end in adultery, but it doesn't start there. It yes. starts with dissatisfaction in the spouse that you have. Well said. Yeah, very, very good. And, you know, one thing we have to address with dissatisfaction, I know Bob has talked about this in 1 Corinthians 6, is sometimes it's better to be wronged. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul talks about not bringing lawsuits against one another? He says, it's better for you to be wronged. And we have to start thinking that way, that it's better for me to be wronged even by my spouse in this life than to tr- transgress God's word. That we live, sometimes we're not going to be happy, but we're going to be faithful. And you know what I mean by happy? Where you just, you got the sunny day and the tuna melt is just right. And you know, your shoulder isn't acting up. And you know, this is great. Sun's out, the twins are winning. You know, I'm just saying, um, are you with me? And and your, your husband, your wife, that's kind of the thing that we think of happiness. But there's a greater joy that happens for obedience to those who are living for the king and his kingdom. And that's the wisdom that Proverbs gives us to say, hey, ultimately you're going to answer to Yahweh. And even if I'm unhappy in this life, or there's times, maybe it fluctuates. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes not so much. But if I'm faithful, faithfulness is what pleases God. God is never going to say, you know, that person just wasn't happy. Um, Think about how happy Jeremiah must have been when he was in the cistern. Another day in the cistern. Yes. Yes. How happy is that? And that's one of the problems with the Word of Faith movement. They sell us on happiness, not faithfulness. Yes, Brian. To uh, his comment, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that the respect and all that comes with a maturity and time in service, if you will. Yes. Okay? And... uh, I've always found this fascinating, uh, a statistic which is true, and that is arranged marriages Mm. tend to last way longer than people who just get traditionally married. Hmm. So the divorce rate is way lower Mm -hmm. in the arranged uh, marriage arena. So it it, it makes sense then that... uh, those things are, those things come with age, with maturity. Yeah, well said. You know, Brian, you, you brought to my mind that there's a quality to faithfulness and fidelity in and of itself. And the fact that someone's faithful shows a caring and a love. Um, and, and Jessica, this isn't to discount what you're saying either. I mean, I'm affirming what you're saying. It's, um, 
if someone's abusive, that is not good. And so we're not protecting the abuser. But what I'm pointing out is there are certainly, you know, I've been married for quite a few years, and I know sometimes it's the toothpaste and the socks or whatever it may be. We all know the picadillos of life, that people don't like this and that, the idiosyncrasies. But the point is there's a, a, a lovingness that's inherent to being faithful. And I think that that's what the scriptures are calling us to. One thing Bob told me years ago, we were doing radio together, and he said, you know, a lot of Christians, when they come to promise problems in their lives, they say, there must be something wrong with my theology. I'm believing the promises of God. And so the temptation is to jettison it. But Bob said, I never forget, it's never give up. And that's what the scriptures are calling us to. That's the good news I want to leave you with. Never give up. Never give up on your spouse. Never, ever, ever give up. Never give up on the word of God. Never give up on the promises. Never give up on being faithful. And as long as you're in the battle, you're in, in the moral will of God. Uh, we're not the people who are sinless. Remember in 1 John, is it 3, it says we do not sin. And there's some debate as to what does it mean that we don't sin. I remember D.A. Carson talking about that passage. And he said he was a young man and he was a student in England. His father was there after the war. And he saw a sign. There was a very strict English teacher in his class. And it said, there's no gum chewing in this class. And he thought, he thought to himself, how ironic, because he was chewing gum at the very time he read it. And the point that he was making wasn't that at any time there wasn't someone that was chewing gum in the room, but that it wouldn't be tolerated. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not that any one time you and I don't fail, but when it says we don't sin, it's not tolerated by us or by the church. And so when we fail... We have to repent and turn back to the narrow path of salvation and keep moving. Brothers and sisters, no matter where you are in marriage or in life, never give up. Today is a new day. Be faithful as to where God planted you. And that's exactly what Bob, I think, is going to be sharing with us today. Do you want to give us any thoughts before I close in prayer on 1 Corinthians 7? You want to save it for the sermon? Yeah. All right, we'll save it for the sermon. But uh, thank you. Let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that it's very clear that we are to be faithful to our spouse all the days of our life. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for wisdom in that regard, that we would be those who really do love and care for our spouse, that we would be faithful to bring honor and glory to your name, that we would persevere even in difficult days, even when things aren't easy, so that your name may be glorified. I do pray for Pastor Bob as he preaches to us out of 1 Corinthians 7. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and to apply Paul's wisdom to where we are in life, whether married or unmarried, that we would be faithful all for the name, your great name and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh.